If, if you're joining us this week and you weren't here last week, then uh, you're finding us in part two of a six-part series on Nehemiah. If you know a little bit about Nehemiah, you know that he was a Jew who was exiled. He lived in what used to be Babylon, was now the kingdom of Persia, and his people were from Jerusalem, were from the area of Judah, but they lost the privilege of living there because of their disobedience. And out of God's sort of severe mercy and judgment, he said, you cannot inhabit the land that I promised you because you've proved yourself unworthy of that. And so King Nebuchadnezzar had come over a hundred years previous to, to Nehemiah being alive, and he had conquered Jerusalem, and he'd taken the Jews that were there, and he'd brought them back to Babylon. They were now exiles there. And life went on for the Jews in exile. And Nehemiah has come up through that, and he is uh, a cupbearer to the king. He is in the court of outer Xerxes. But he hears the report that when, ne when Nebuchadnezzar had come to Jerusalem and, and conquered it, he'd actually torn down the walls of the city, just leveled them, had burned the gates. And for any city, that was a great disgrace. For any city, that left the people there with insecurity, left them really vulnerable, left them without protection. And it was just a situation that should not be, and it certainly shouldn't be for the city of God. Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, this would not be, this should not be, this cannot be for something that's called God's. And so when Nehemiah hears this report from his brother, his heart is broken. It says he breaks down and he weeps for the wall, for what's happened in Jerusalem, for the fact that the walls have been destroyed. And so when we, we're in touch with Nehemiah's experience because there are broken walls in our lives, aren't there? Us personally, us as individuals, there's things that have been broken, relationships that have been fractured. Let's be honest, sometimes we, we grew up in an environment where walls weren't really built to begin with, where there wasn't protection, where there was vulnerability, where there was insecurity on a day-to-day-to-day -to -day -to -day level, and that takes its toll. And some of us have wept over that or need to weep over that. And so at a personal level, we can learn a lot from Nehemiah's journey where he's called by God not just to weep and be in that state of mourning, but to actually go forward and rebuild those walls. So we learn personally. We learn in whatever community that you're in. You may be in a small group community, a ministry community, and you realize there's some things that need to be attended to. There's some stuff that needs to be rebuilt. There's some relationships that need to be repaired. So that's another reason we're doing that, looking at the life of Nehemiah. How, how does that translate into your work team at your employment? You know, not every, not every work team is functional. Every, every employer, well, most employees, Employer places have what? Have some sense of drama, have some sense of stuff that's not working, have some issues, right? So how are you going to be salt and light there? Maybe this series on Nehemiah is speaking to you in that regard. And then finally, as a church, just as a leadership, we have felt that we want to be before the Lord to ask him two questions. What is it that needs to be rebuilt in this life of this church? And marriage and family ministry would be one example. But I'm thankful for the Bible study that you heard about, that Carolyn Pierce's been led to lead for our wives and for the, our women that are engaged. We're starting to rebuild bit by bit, but there are ministries that do need to be rebuilt. There's also some new ministries that need to be restarted. Oh, excuse me, new ministries that need to be started. And so part of this time in Nehemiah, part of this six weeks, is that like him, we are bearing down in prayer. We're being before him. We're saying, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. Show us what you want us to know what you want us to do. This is what Nehemiah is doing when he hears the news of the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem. He is praying. He is fasting. He is mourning. And so we looked at that last week. We saw that if you want to start getting on God's agenda for your life at whatever level, you need to go to God in prayer. And when you go, you have to come clean with God. You have to be just before him, palms up, Palms out saying, Lord, whatever it is I'm trying to bring into this that's of me, that's not of you, would you please cleanse me of that? Any attitudes, any actions, any histories, Lord, I want to make a clean break. I don't want to be my same old self. I want you to do something new in me so that you can do something new through me. And so that's the second principle from last week. You just have to come clean with God. As you do, 
Guess what God does? He starts to lead you in the places that he is. He starts to show you that he is a merciful God. And so that was our third point, that you connect with the God who is merciful, the God who doesn't hold our past against us, the God who has a hope and a future, who says, I don't want you to focus back there. I want you to focus out here where I'm leading you. That's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's calling each of us to do. Get in touch with a God who is merciful. But when you do and you say, Lord, I want your will, pretty quickly you run up into your own sense of a lack of strength. Man, I can't do this, or I've tried to do it and it hasn't worked. What's going to be different? And so you connect not only with the God of mercy, but you connect with the God of might, the God of power, the God who made everything, who spoke everything into being out of nothing. Who is more powerful than our God? And so that was Nehemiah. That's all in chapter 1. Much of that comes from his prayer. Today, we're going to talk about chapter 2, curiously enough. This is where Nehemiah starts to take what God's been stirring in his heart, what God's been working in him, and he starts to make it a reality. And so we're going to be in Nehemiah 2, just looking at the first nine verses. And we'll learn, hopefully, some principles that, about Nehemiah's life that help us take whatever dreams he's put in our hearts, whatever rebuilding convictions he's put in our lives, start to take them from just kind of thinking about it or, or nurturing it here and start to make it real. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would open up to Nehemiah 2, the first Nine verses, one to nine. I'm reading out of the NIV. The words will appear on the screen. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Let's bring our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for your leading of him. Thank you for his faithfulness to follow, empowered by you. Lord, help us to learn what you would say to each of us, what walls need rebuilding, what you're weeping over in our lives that we need to weep over. Lord, let us learn from your word, from your Holy Spirit, and from one another in the days ahead that we would be forever changed and have greater and greater impact for time and eternity. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. When I look at these verses, when you were hearing these verses, what, were you, what, what principles were already coming to mind? I mean, we'll start to unpack them, but I think there's three particular areas that we're going to focus on today. The first is, that you, is to take risks as God leads. Nehemiah is taking a risk. He's leaving a pretty comfortable job, and he's going to a place that, he, that, to our knowledge, he hasn't been to, to meet all kinds of folks he's never met, to do something he's never done. He's taking risks. If you want to get where God has you planned to go, if you want to rebuild the walls that are part of his plan, you've got to take risks. The other thing that we see Nehemiah needing and doing is looking for favor. Nehemiah was not about to take one step out of that palace without the favor of of King Artaxerxes. We cannot take one step forward in the calling that God has on our life without the favor of others that God's already planned to be a part of that. We'd like to be lone rangers, 
But we're not designed to be lone rangers. We need favor of those around us. Look for favor. So that's going to be uh, the second principle. The final place that we'll look at is practice faithfulness. Because when you think of favor, the path to favor comes through faithfulness. Sometimes we get favor just out of the blue, but oftentimes it comes out of a practice of faithfulness. So taking risks, looking for favor, practicing faithfulness, that's going to be where we're spending our time. So what do I mean by taking risk? Take risks as God leads. You know, risk, what is risk? Risk risk is this idea that I've got a goal, I've got a direction, there's something I want to accomplish, I'm willing to invest my time in it, I'm willing to invest my talents in it, I've got whatever resources, money, other things, and I'm going to invest that, and I hope that my goals get achieved. You know, investments in the financial world are rated by risk. You invest a certain amount into a low risk, you get a low return. You invest a certain amount into high risk, hopefully you get a high return. Risk is that sense that even though I want this, the outcome is uncertain. There's no guarantee that what I want, I will actually get. To the extent there's a lot, you know, not much guarantee, that's, that's why those, some investments are higher risk than others. That's not only true in the financial industry, that's true in the sporting world. Every year, teams, you know, management, owners, decide that they're going to risk on certain, you know, a lot of money on certain players. There are some Major League Baseball players earning tens of millions of dollars on a multi-year contract, and I'll guarantee you, if you talk to any one of those owners, they, they are saying, I am taking a risk on that person. It may not work out. They may get injured and not be able to be the sluggers that I thought that they would be. Or they just may not play well. That's really bad. And then when they don't play well, guess who climbs on them? All the sporting people. They start writing articles about them. There's an article now, like the the 10 most overrated players in Major League Baseball in 2014. How'd you like your name on that list? That's pretty harsh because what they're saying is uh, these owners are paying all this money to these guys, but they're not getting the return. They're not getting the home runs. They're not getting the hits. They're not getting the fielding. ESPN actually takes a poll of baseball players and, and asks this question. Who's the most overrated player in Major League Baseball? People get to vote. The sad thing is the guy who's won it has won it the last two years in a row. Like, how would you like to be voted the most overrated guy in Major League Baseball two years running? Not a distinction that I would want if I was playing baseball. That's pretty harsh. The good news is he doesn't play for the Giants or the A's, so that's good. He plays for an East Coast team. But, But our culture likes to find out who's overrated. Our culture likes to say this is risky or this risk isn't worth it or that kind of thing. Risk is I want something, but the outcome is not certain. Nehemiah is taking a risk. You know, in in Bible times, when you're in a court of a king, you don't just sort of strike up a conversation and say, how's it going, king? You're looking looking pretty good. Or, it looked like you had a rough night last night. Anyway, anyway, what would you like to drink? Because he's a cupbearer. No, in Bible times, you did not speak to the king unless you were spoken to. And so, he's not speaking to Artaxerxes, but his heart is broken and it shows on his face. And so Artaxerxes speaks to him. And if you remember the text, it says what? I was very afraid. Why was he afraid? Because the minute he opens his mouth to essentially talk about what's breaking his heart and then to go on to ask for permission to leave his employer, which is essentially what he's doing, he's taking a risk. The risk that he would be fired, that would be actually minimal damage. It could be that his lifestyle would suddenly be changed and he'd be banished. Or even worse, he could lose his life. Artaxerxes, by God's sovereignty, is a more merciful king. And so he not only hears out what's going on for Nehemiah, but he grants him his requests. A little bit more on that later. But he is taking a risk, which is why the text tells us that he is afraid. And it's why when he's asked, the king says, what do you want? He says what? He says, I prayed to God and I answered the king. He's scared, but he's prepared. That's taking a risk. When we're asked, by, led by the Lord to do something, from our perspective, the outcome is not certain. But when God is leading us to do something, it's far more certain in his mind, isn't it? So Nehemiah is taking a risk. God is calling him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but he doesn't know how it's going to get done. He's just started to think about some initial steps, and we need to do that too. But the only way to rebuild walls in our lives is what? By taking a risk. If you're trying to, if you're trying to repair a relationship that's been fractured, is it there risk involved? 
When, when you send an email, or better yet, you call them up and you say, you know what? Our relationship isn't at the place that I'd like it to be. We once enjoyed great fellowship. We once had real closeness. But, but that's not where we are right now. And I, I miss that. I would, I'd like to kind of rebuild what we had lost. What, we, what I tore down. I mean, this is part of confessing. This is part of coming clean. I had a real stake. I had a real part in tearing down our relationship. And I just want to apologize for that. And I would like it, if we can, to, to rebuild something. That takes risk. There's a risk that you'll be shut down. There's a risk that they will say no. There's a risk that they say, I can't even believe you're calling me. There's a real risk. That outcome is uncertain. What about in business? Oftentimes, there's stuff that goes on, and, and you're working hard at your employer. You're working hard on the job, and you see things that they should know about. You know, you see a different way of doing things. You see a customer satisfaction issue that ought to be corrected, but you know that it's not necessarily a climate where you're free to share everything, but you think that's the right thing to do, that God's calling you to do that. You take a risk when you set up an appointment to talk with your management. The risk is that they think you're a troublemaker. The risk is that they think you're a self-promoter. There's all kinds of risk factors involved. But if you think it's the right thing to do for the organization that you signed on for, do it. That's, I mean, you pray about it like Nehemiah. You pray, and then you figure out how to answer the king. The only way to build many, rebuild many of the walls in our lives is to take a risk. We as a church, what risks is God asking us to take? Boy, I think the safest place to be in the center of God's will is to be taking risks that he's leading us to take. If it's all safe and it's all planned out, man, that sounds a lot like my thinking, not necessarily God's thinking. So part of the indicator about whether you're being led by the Lord to take a risk is, do you feel like if God doesn't come through, I don't know how this is going to work. This is exactly what Nehemiah's experience was. Risks that God is leading you to take. Don't take foolish risks. Foolish risks are ones that are self-centered. I want to be really rich. I want to be really popular. I want to be really wealthy. Things that are just centered on what we want, those can be foolish risks. Some things that we think are risky are coming out of our enticements. Things that the world, the flesh, and the devil are building up in our lives. It's like, oh man, I've got to watch out for that. I don't want that to be what I consider risky. I want, so when I say take risk, I'm saying as God leads you to do that. So we have to be discerning. Some things are easy to discern. I, I will not risk my life in any extreme sports. I will not ride a motorcycle that gains, you know, 60 feet of altitude while it goes from one ramp to another. I will not do half-pipe snowboarding. I will not even do skateboarding. If I'm going to ride something that can go fast, I want it to be stationary, like a bicycle at the gym or something like that. You know, there's some of us are risk-averse. But some of us really need to, like, whoa, is this risk worth it? You know, is, is, and by worth it, is God really calling you to do it? You know, the hardest part about risk is this. When we're really honest, when you talk about whether rebuilding a relationship, when you talk about restoring a marriage, when you talk about reaching out to some kids that you've been trying to share your life with faithfully over the years that they were in your house, but they seem far away, part of the reason that we freeze up, that we don't go forward with that, is that we're afraid that it won't pan out. We're afraid that they won't respond. We're afraid that it just won't work out. Can I say, if that's where you are, and we're all there to some extent, that there's so much in Scripture that encourages us. I think about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. What, what does the ruler do who, who gives the talents, or a nice biblical way of saying lots of money, he gives lots of money to three different people, actually different amounts, according to Matthew. And he says what? I just want you to invest it, and I want you to earn a return on it. I'm going away, but when I come back, I'm going to ask you what you did with that. And that's what he says to them. And then two of them invest it, and two of them earn a real return. They earn a 100% return on the money that's invested. And the master is very pleased with the fact that they invested it and got a return. They're pleased that they earned a return. He's pleased how they use their money. Who does he save his wrath for? Who does he save the criticism for? He saves it for the one servant who fails to invest, who fails to take a risk. He says you could at least have put it on deposit and earned a little return, like a no-risk investment. You could at least have done that. And so when God is calling us to do rebuild our walls, he's not asking us necessarily for a result, 
for a return, but he is asking us for an effort. Just put something in there. Make sure that insofar as it's up to you, you're at peace with everybody. Insofar as it's up to you when I'm leading you to try to reconcile or build something new, that you're moving out in faith. I'll take care of the results, says the Lord. I'll be responsible for that. And that, if we think about that, if you embrace that, if we know, then we're not responsible for the results. We're just responsible for the effort. Just responsible to do the initial investment. We'll let God handle the results. Because when God handles it, those results will be far bigger than we can think or imagine. Man, I want God to handle the results. I don't want it. I don't even want to think about what those would be. I want God to do that. What I want to do is just be faithful. I just want to risk what he tells me to risk. I'll leave it to him. I, I want us to be really encouraged by that point. Because if we are, then we'll be able to move forward. Because the reality is, some investments won't pan out. Let's just be really honest. There's some things that you'll invest in, and they don't work out. There's companies you might invest in, or property, and the value goes down instead of up. There's a relationship that you invest in, and it goes south instead of north. There's a company that you join thinking it's great and you're going to stay there till you retire and they go bust in six months. There's all kinds of investments that we make that don't pan out for reasons beyond our control. But guess what? We're really the ones that are accountable to continue to invest. And when we do that, continue to give God's love, continue to try to reconcile, to continue to try to build something new as God leads us to do. And when we do that, you know who we're like? Are we not like our Heavenly Father? Does He not invest in us? Yeah. Does He not say, you know, He spreads His word throughout the world. Is He getting a return from everybody who hears His word? No. That's the parable of the soils. There's some people that embrace God's word and they grow 30, 60, and 100 fold. There's others that kind of hear it, but it gets choked out. And there's some that just are enthusiastic just for a short time until persecution comes. And there's some that just hear it and it blows right by them. God is still scattering his seed. He's still trying to throw it out there, still trying to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to know and hear his love, his mercy, his grace, and have eternal life. And he does that through each of us. We're scattering seed in, in the lives of those around you, at your business, in this church, in your neighborhood. Not everything that you do, not every neighbor that you visit, not everybody that you come alongside of is even going to want to hear the gospel. But you're still being faithful. You're still scattering your seed. You're being like your heavenly father. And then what, what higher calling can we have other than to hear that we are like our heavenly father, than to hear well done. When he says well done, good and faithful servant, it's because we've been faithful with what he's given us, not because of the result that he brought about. So when you think about it, when you think about something that's risky, if God calls you to it and you say it's risky, is it really risky from God's perspective? No, I don't think so. When he called Nehemiah to rebuild the wall, he's like, I don't know how it's going to work out. Nehemiah, you better get going. Come on, get, get going. Get in front of the king. Get moving. Get that cavalry team. Get, get to Jerusalem. No, he knew every issue, every challenge, every obstacle, everything that Nehemiah would go through or have to deal with far before Nehemiah had to know about it. Nehemiah could have seen risk. He, I'm sure he did see risk. He's obviously a planner because when the king says, what do you want, out comes the shopping list. He says, well, I need a building permit. I need materials. I need a trip to Home Depot. I need your corporate card. I need a fast pass to get around. You know, so Nehemiah's prepared. And he may have thought that there was some risk, but God knew exactly what he's doing. When God calls us to it, how much risk is there involved? I think the only risk is that we don't follow the only thing really in our control is that we say we're like that, that servant that doesn't invest. We hold back. We shrink back. Who is it that Christ, when he gets on his disciples' case, what's he get? What, when, and if you just think of the Gospels, what are the times where he's taken his disciples to task? He calls them little faiths. You of little faith. When we don't have the faith to follow the way that God is leading because we're afraid of a risk that we think is really there, but in fact, from God's perspective, is not there at all. So the prayer is, Lord, help me to see with your eyes what you're calling me to do. Help me to trust and have that heart of faith that if you're calling me to it, you'll lead me through it. 
That's what we need to get in touch with. I don't know if Nehemiah is in touch with that. He certainly is faithful. But that's when I talk about take risks. I mean, get in touch with your Heavenly Father, for whom whatever he speaks into being, there is no risk involved. From our perspective, he calls us to be faithful. Just to push that point one more time in a different way. Doesn't God take risks on each one of us? He does, doesn't he? He says, I, I, I gave you time. I mean, just the fact that we're here today, he's given us time, he's given us one more day, he's given us September 27th to do something for him, to honor him, to glorify him. I've given you time, I've given you talent, I've given you resources. Are you using them in the way that I'm calling you to use them? He invests in us. You know, Bree's here. I'm glad to see Bree again. Bree, as a missionary, typically uh, has to send, or does send, letters just to say, hey guys, th- here, thank you to my church for supporting me. Here's what's going on. Here's how God's, uh, here's the work that's going on in Japan. Here's how he's using me. Here's how he's challenging me. You know, we expect those that we uh, support in a missionary context to send us letters, don't we? And I don't know if Bree enjoys sending those letters. Some uh, other missionary friends of ours really don't like doing that. Um, but when you think of what those letters are, in some ways they're saying, here's the investment you're making in me. Here's the return that's coming. Here, here's what's actually going on. And that can make us feel a little comfortable. I'm like, man, I praise God for Bree. She's sending letters and other people are sending letters. But here's a question for us. What if you were going to write a letter to somebody? In so many words, saying, invest in me. What would you write? Uh, well, um, stay tuned, under construction, page 404, not found yet. You know, what, what are you saying about your life that will make it somebody want to invest in you? Now, that's a challenging question. It's not meant to bring condemnation. It's meant to just say, the Lord is a great investor. And he, is, he loves us lavishly. And so he says, I want your life to be capable of writing a letter to a friend and just say, pray for me. Here's what's going on. Pray for me. Here's what I think God's calling me to do. We as a church should be able to write a letter saying, this is what God's calling us to do. So that's just a good little test, if you will, to make sure that we know we're staying on God's track for us. What would you write? Second thing that I see going on with with Nehemiah is he looks for favor. As I said, Nehemiah can't get out of the palace, can't get uh, a work release until he actually gets permission from the king. He needs the king's favor. There are things that God's calling us to do where we need the favor of somebody else. We need somebody to pick us, to say yes to what we're asking them to say yes to. We need somebody to select us above other options or select the things that we say. If you're, if you're talking about a ministry and you're talking about resources, you know, at some point you need favor from those that you're looking for support from. They need to say yes. And when we receive that favor, isn't that a great moment? Think about the times you've had favor. When somebody, a job you interview for, they call you up and they say, you got the job. They shake your hand, you got the job. They send you the, the, the package, you got the job. It's like, wow, favor of all those other people. They picked me. How about the product that you were selling? And, and, and they picked yours over others, over the competitors. How about the doctor that you wanted for the health care thing that you're going through? And that doctor you wanted, even though they weren't seeing new patients, they said yes to your request. Or the school that you want for your child. And even though they didn't have any room, they said yes to your child. These are examples of favor. How about when you asked her for a date and she said yes? Favor. How about when you asked for another date and she still said yes? Real favor. <laughs> and that's real favor sometimes. How about some of you are just in touch with a time where after resisting God, after resisting Jesus for many years, you said yes. And you felt his favor. You felt that you got in touch with the fact that he said, I died for you. If you were the only person, I would have died for you. That's, that's what melts our hearts, isn't it? I think many people could give testimony to the time where they just said, Lord, I, I get it now. 
I belong to you. You've granted me favor. You, you planned that I would be a part of your family even before you made me. That, that is such favor. I, I can't comprehend that. But that, that's, that's divine favor. Earthly favor is God's sort of hand working through the things in this life. This is what Nehemiah says, right? He says, God gave the gracious hand of God was on me and the king granted my requests. When we receive favor in this life, it's God that's behind it. So a few things can compare with that receipt of favor. But favor does a lot of other things here. When you get favor on a direction that you're heading to, God's confirming his direction. If Nehemiah was told no by Artaxerxes, if the king said, no, I don't think so. If the king said, wait a minute, whoa, you, you're a cupbearer, let's review, you're a cupbearer, and you want to go rebuild walls in Jerusalem. Okay, you're not the royal architect, so I don't know why you want to do that. You're not the royal builder, I don't know why you want to do that. Your resume does not qualify you to rebuild walls. You got to stay here and keep serving drinks. But the king doesn't say that, does he? Why? Because he has favor. Nehemiah gets favor from Artaxerxes. So favor is a way that Nehemiah's calling is confirmed. He confirms God's direction. Now, to be sure, Nehemiah prays for favor. Remember that time when the king says, what do you want? And he says, I prayed to God and I answered the king. Pray for favor. In that moment when God comes, when you have the opportunity for favor, when your boss says, well, what do you think? Or she says, do you want to go out? Or, um, you know, there's some other offer the relationship. The person says, yeah, I would like to rebuild that relationship. In that moment, you pray to God and then you respond. So Nehemiah, he, his, the favor that he gets confirms the direction that God has him is. He's praying for favor even while he's needing it and expecting it. And favor comes in God's timing. So a couple things. You know, favor, favor isn't something you can manufacture. Favor isn't something you can coerce. Favor isn't something you can command. Favor is the grace of somebody else given to you for something that you need to accomplish God's plan. So favor, you can't, you can't demand it. And therefore, you can't control the timing of it. Now, I'm not an expert on the Persian calendar, so I actually had to read this, but apparently there's a four-month gap between the time uh, Nehemiah hears about the walls being destroyed and the time he actually has his conversation with Artaxerxes in the court. Four months. I, why, why is there that delay? We don't know. Why is there a delay in the favor that you need to do what God wants you to do? Why hasn't that person that you reached out to a month ago not called you back? Why is it that that request that you put into your employer not been responded to? Why is it that when you talk about a ministry that you want to do, you haven't received any real encouragement, any aspects of favor at this point? The short answer is we don't know necessarily all the reasons why there's a delay but we do know that as there's a delay, God is preparing us in that time. So favor comes in God's timing, but in, during that timing, we, during that delay, we should be preparing ourselves. It's clear from the conversation that Nehemiah has with the king that he's been thinking about how to rebuild the walls. He's been thinking about what he needs to get, who he needs to work with, how he needs to do it. If some of the favor you need to have is delayed, how are you preparing? When you have to have a conversation about restoring a relationship with somebody that you care about, oftentimes you'll know what you want to say to them far in advance of the opportunity to say it. You'll say, man, if I just could have their time, if I just get some, you know, a half hour, two hours with them, that would be great. But you don't get that. You have to pray. And, and if, while you don't have that, or while that, they're not responding to it, you're prayerful. You're like, Lord, would you open up just that, that divine window where they're going to be receptive to what I think you're putting on my heart to say? Have you ever been on the receiving end of that where somebody's kind of trying to force a conversation that you know you either don't want to have or shouldn't have because you're not in the state really to hear it? Yeah, we've all been there. Please don't talk to me. Please send me an email. Send me a letter. Send me a postcard. Don't, don't send it in a hurry. We don't want to have conversations sometimes that are unpleasant because we're not prepared. Sometimes, if you're, trying to have a, if you're trying to restore something that's been broken down, you know in advance, far in advance, typically, what you want to say, but you don't have the opportunity to say it. So pray that they would have ears to hear. That's true whether if you're trying to share your faith with family members. 
I, I prayed for years for my family, for my dad especially. And there were times for years. And there would be one time where he'd read the, the track that I gave him. And I remember the first time I gave him one, he's like, I read it. What'd you think? Eh, it's good for you. It's not for me. Oh, man. So I keep praying for him. But if, honestly, I got discouraged. At times there were whole periods where I didn't pray for him. God had stored up those prayers, and God released them in the time of crisis where my dad's health was really going from bad to worse. Guess what? God used that to get his attention. God had used the, the mediocre prayers that I'd prayed for my father. I think he just, out of his own grace and mercy, blessed those. And so then that conversation that I wanted to have, I was able to have, like, Dad, this is serious. Dad, I don't know if you're going to, you know, you don't have long to live. I was having this conversation, I was in the hospital. And he responded. He wasn't ready to hear it years before. There are people in your life that you want to rebuild or build something new. They're not ready to hear it. In that waiting time, you are praying. You're asking God for his favor. You're asking for the right opportunity. As you do that, you're, the other thing you need to do is just be faithful. That's the third point here. Practice faithfulness. Nehemiah is taking risks as God leads him to. Nehemiah is looking for the favor that he needs. And Nehemiah has set himself up for that favor by his faithfulness. You know, sometimes favor comes out of the blue, right? Where just somebody, something really wonderful happens to you. And you're like, I wasn't expecting that, but God did that. I had a friend of mine in college. We're in the same uh, campus ministry. A lot of We went to a large college, so lots of people, lots of eligible young ladies for this young man. And he didn't find his wife of now 30-plus years in that big sea of people. Where he found her, by God's favor, was when he uh, served as a missionary on the southern tip of Baja, Mexico, for some months, some period of time, maybe it was a year or two, I can't remember the specifics. But during that time, from time to time, a church would send down kind of a work crew. And during one of those times, uh, a church went down there and off the bus stepped his future wife. What, what kind of matchmaking is that, that God does, that he sends somebody all the way to the southern tip of Baja, and then he sends a woman after him and says, this is just my favor. He wasn't looking. I mean, that's, that's kind of not a strategy one would typically employ. What's your dating strategy? Well, I'm going to go to the remotest part of uh, North America, or one of the remote, remote parts, and then I'm just going to hang out and serve God. But God shows favor. Some of you have testimonies and business deals that have closed that you didn't think were going to close. Um, relationships that have been healed. Church ministries that you thought, man, this is just getting started. The next thing you know, two years later, this is phenomenal in terms of the impact that God's having. So you don't know. Sometimes that's just sort of that favor that comes out of the blue. But oftentimes, more often, favor comes out of our sense of being faithful. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. That's more than just serving beverages to the royal family. There's actually a, a quasi-secret service aspect to this. In Bible times, the king uh, was usually under threat, and one of the ways that people got at, at the king was by poison. And so the cupbearer's responsibilities, one of their responsibilities, was to test whatever was being served to make sure that no poison was being served to the king. Think of the inherent trust that goes into that position of being a cupbearer. But this is Nehemiah. He has a position of trust. He's obviously proven himself faithful. He's obviously been doing that over a period of time, so much so that the king can discern when he has a heavy heart. He knows just by his facial expression what his servant is going through. So Nehemiah has been in a place of trust. He has proven faithful in that place of trust. And as a result of that, I believe the favor that, that he was granted by the king was in part because of his faithfulness to however long he'd been serving. And that principle is the same for us today. If you want to be, if you want the favor that you need to rebuild the walls that God has for you, are you being faithful where you are? If you want to do some things on your job site or in your ministry or in this church, are you faithfully serving the way that God has called you to serve here? Why is that so important? Because Luke says, Jesus says in Luke 16.10, he who is faithful in a very little thing will be faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing will be unrighteous in much. Again, part of the reason I think Nehemiah is permitted to do something that he wasn't really qualified for, at least by resume standards, is because he'd been faithful in a little thing. 
And so he was given much. And the same is true for us. So when I talk about faithfulness, position yourself for favor by being faithful. Do that. There's a, a couple ways specifically to do that. One is to have a stewardship mentality. You just want to be, think of your life as a stewardship more than as an owner. Remember when, when Paul is talking to the Colossians in 3.23 and 3.24, he says this. This is what I mean by stewardship. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Work as unto the Lord. Why? Is it your, your boss that you're serving? No, not really. It's, it's Jesus who you're serving. Wow. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is it just for her? Well, it's also because you're actually serving Christ. You want to be like him. Are you serving your kids? Well, yeah, you are, but they're God's children. They're the next generation. After you die, they're going to carry forward the gospel. So, it's not your job, it's God's. It's not your spouse, it's God's. It's not your kids, it's God's. It's, you know, it's not your church, it's God's. Stewardship mentality. An owner says, it's mine. An owner says, it's mine and I'm going to keep it the way I want to keep it. You don't, re you don't rebuild much with that kind of owner mentality. You've got to have that stewardship. The stewardship says, Lord, everything that you give me is because it's from you, you just give it to me to earn a return. I just want to be a faithful investor. I just want to invest the love, the mercy, whatever you put into me, I want to give to those around me. I want to be a steward of that. When you do that, God will bring the increase. God will bring the joy and the fulfillment and the things that are meant by family life. By being a parent, your kids will bring you joy. More often than not. Your uh, doesn't come easy, but it does come. Uh, you know, your spouse, your marriage will become the more the life-giving place that it was meant to be, designed by God to be if we would do it his way, if we would act more as stewards, not as owners. So have that stewardship mindset. The other thing to do if you really want to set yourself up for favor, if you want to practice faithfulness, is to be teachable. Be teachable. What do I mean by that? Be somebody who learns not only from your mistakes, but just learns about the people that you're, you're interacting with. Um, ask God if, if there's a delay between the time you need favor. Lord, what are you showing me in this time? I'm frustrated, Lord. What are you telling me about me? What do I need to learn about me? What do I need to learn about your patience or your grace? Nothing kills a person's ability to influence or be used by God more than not having a teachable spirit. Man, if you've been passed over for promotion, if, if your ministry desires haven't been met, that's a fair question. Are you teachable? When, when somebody gave you an assignment and said, hey, this is what we're asking you to do, this is how we're asking you to do it, this is kind of what we're looking for in return, and then they come back and they check up a little bit later and they say, how's it going? And they don't find that you did what you were asked to do or you did it the way that you were told to do it or shown how to do it. And when they ask you about it, you're coming at them with disagreement, some attitude. It's like, you're not teachable. And they're not usually going to, you don't get, you know, in employment and other places, you don't get a whole lot of second chances. God will give you a lot of second chances. But oftentimes, if we're not having the impact, if we're not having the influence, the question gets raised, do we have that teachable spirit that we need to have? Are we faithful right where we're being in the moment that we're, uh, supposed to be there, supposed to do whatever God has called us to do. So be teachable. It's not, by the way, faithfulness is not optional. You know, when I say uh, faithfulness is the road to favor, if you will, that's, that is true, but the, the harsh reality is it's, if we're not being faithful, then not only will we not get favor, but we can actually start to move from, rather, do, rather than constructing the walls, continue the destruction that's been going on. When we are unfaithful, we tend to think of unfaithful more in a marriage kind of context when we hear about sin described that way, and that is true, but that's not just the only example. So many examples, if we prove ourselves unfaithful, destruction inevitably follows. If you follow the news, you know that in this past week, it was revealed that a major auto manufacturer had been putting in software that fudged the results of an emissions test. They essentially lied to all the regulators to, to say our car doesn't produce these bad emissions, and they did it with software. And now that that's been exposed, 
now that they're, they, they have been unfaithful to the trust that was placed in them, they have lost favor with all manner of people. Their investors have lost favor. Their stock has declined by about a third. Their customers have lost favor. A lot of people are just like, wow, here I am thinking I'm doing something reasonable for the environment by driving a, by driving a car that at least meets emission standards, and now you're telling me I've been driving around polluting things and with my diesel car? Is that what... So you can imagine what the customer base is feeling. The government, the regulators, are highly irritated about this, and, and so this is going to be costly to this car company. They've lost favor with regulators, lost favor with customers, lost favor with investors, all because they were unfaithful. But when you are faithful, God brings favor. And it's a continuing cycle until he accomplishes the role and the plan that he has for you. Until he rebuilds everything that he wants to rebuild in your life and use you to rebuild it in, others, in the lives of others. When I think of that, I marvel at it. When I think of that, I, I think of the example of Joseph in, in Genesis who, who used faithfully the gifts that God gave him. What did Joseph do? Joseph used, he was given the ability to interpret dreams. And he uses them as a young, kind of precocious guy and he talks about the dreams he had with his brothers. I'm in Genesis, if, if you're not familiar with that story. And he says to his brothers, you know, you're all going to bow down to me, and God's, you know, that's just my dream. That actually causes disfavor, but he gets enough favor from his brother Reuben not to be killed, but only to be sold into slavery. But God gives him favor by placing him in Potiphar's house, where his other gift of administration, he's a tremendous administrator, that starts to come to the fore. He uses both those gifts, in, in a variety of ways that we read about. His gift to interpret dreams, his gift of administration. So even in Potiphar's house where things are looking up, where it looks like God's plan is being realized, then God allows him to go through yet another trial by being falsely accused. He's put into prison where his gift as an administrator and as an interpreter of dreams gets manifest again. And so he finds favor eventually with the cupbearer whose dream he interpreted, but the cupbearer forgets him. He, he doesn't have... The, the cupbearer was in prison with him. Just, and the cupbearer, Joseph, interprets his dream as the fact that he will be released in a few, you know, after a certain time. And when the cupbearer is released, he says to the cupbearer, please remember me. The cupbearer does not remember him. There's a delay in the favor that Joseph needed to be out of jail. But eventually, God moves in Pharaoh's heart by giving Pharaoh a dream. And then the cupbearer remembers, yeah, there's a guy in the kingdom can, that can actually interpret this. And his name is Joseph, and oh yeah, he's still in prison. And so Joseph is sent for, and he uses his gift of dream interpretation that God gave him to interpret Pharaoh's dream, to tell him that there's seven years of plenty that are going to come, followed by seven years of famine. And then God, through Pharaoh, puts Joseph in charge, uses his great administrative gifts, to make sure that the nation has enough grain stored up during the seven years of plenty, so that during the seven years of famine, nobody starves. And God, through Joseph, saves a nation, saves the nation of Egypt, saves the very small nation, this nation-to-be of Israel, because right now Israel is just Jacob and, his, and the 12 patriarchs, and Joseph doesn't even know that that's who they are yet. But God had that plan through, through Joseph. God knew that when he gave Joseph those gifts, and if Joseph would be faithful in the execution of them, no matter what the ups and downs were in his life, God would eventually use that to save a nation. And oh, by the way, as he saved the nation, he was saving Joseph's family. Because Joseph, through that time, is actually reconciled to his other brothers. And that's just a dynamic story all by itself in Genesis 39 and 40. Joseph is used... The brothers, what they meant originally for evil, they, they, all they could do to just keep from killing him when he was a kid. And out of that, was, that was all part of God's plan to save those brothers physically so they didn't perish from famine, to save their families and to reunite them in relationship. Joseph is weeping over his brothers when he sees them. He has to excuse himself and just break down and cry that they are there and that, and that there's a possibility that they can be reconnected. And they apologize. But Joseph has God's perspective. Joseph can see now what God was doing through his faithfulness, as hard as it was, through the challenging times that it led him through, through the times of disfavor and favor, through the prolonged periods. Joseph can now see what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. 
whatever walls God is calling you to rebuild, whatever walls he's calling us to rebuild as a church, however hard that is, wherever that leads us, if we would stay faithful in the time that we need it, we will gain favor. If we're willing to take risks by following God, just take the risks that he gives us, then we will really become the people, the church, the individuals, the families that he's always intended us to be. But if we prove ourselves faithless, then we should not have that expectation. I say that a little bit out of a sense of warning, but I want to close with the sense of hope, the reality of the hope that, that even though there is the temptation to be faithless for whatever reason, there's every aspect of God's power and love that keeps us secure, that holds us tight, that binds us close, that says you never have to be there if you just follow me. That I love you, you may need another chance, I am the God of another chance. I'm not done investing in you, I know the return I want out of you. All I ask is for you to be faithful. All I ask is for the effort. All I ask is for you to follow me. That's really it. Lord, thank you for the 27th of September. What do you want me to do? Lord, thank you for being, putting me in abundant life. What do you want us to do? Lord, thank you. My, my neighborhood is not a random selection. I didn't find it on Google Maps and go there. I, you put me there for a reason. What is it that you want me to do? Don't let the enemy come at you and bring a big history lesson and say, you know what, you can't do that, you didn't do that, you're faithless, you always be... No. It's the 27th of September. It's a new day. It's a day where we're asking God to lead us where he's always ordained us to go, to repair the walls that have been broken down that we let get disrepaired, the ones we broke ourselves and the ones that were never, ever established. Be a builder. Be a faithful builder. Amen? Let me leave you with these three questions. Because one of the things we want to do, two very practical things through this six-week series. We want us to be, as a congregation and as individuals, in prayer. Be really intentional. Carve out that extra time to be before the Lord. And when you go before the Lord in your prayer, these are three areas just to ask Him for. Lord, what do you want me to risk? No. What, what am, I, am I holding back on something? Am I afraid that it won't pan out? Second question. Lord, I mean, where do you need favor? Who needs to sort of sign off on the stuff that you believe God is calling you to do? Are you praying for that? Are you prepared to take it when it comes? Where do you need favor? And the third question is, how are you preparing for that? Are you staying faithful? What are the areas that need to be shored up? Do you need to be more teachable? Do you have to have more of a stewardship kind of mentality about that? Just immediate application areas. If you're in a small group, we'll put these questions out there to you. But we want to be different people. By different, I mean the people that God has called us to be. So, let's give God thanks.